Are you confused and curious about the latest food world drama? Are you wondering how COVID-19 will change our relationship to the salsa bar? Well, if so, you have clicked on the right podcast. This is Extra Spicy, and I'm Solejo. And I'm Justin Phillips. On this show, we talk about food and what it all means by speaking with people in the Bay Area and beyond who are writing and thinking about how what we eat shapes us and connects us. On our first episode, we speak with Top Chef's Padma Lakshmi about her new show, Taste the Nation. It's a really a show about people and, the, and using the food that they eat in order to get to know their life experience and their daily lives better. We also bring up some really crazy food world nonsense for you to check out. The thing that got me was Popeyes. And they tweeted, Popeyes is nothing without black lives. <laughs> oh <my> period. God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do it. So I was really excited to be able to get Padma on the show because, well, you know, I've been a big fan of Top Chef for so long. Um, I stopped watching it after I was like fed up with watching food TV, but it's pretty cool to see the way that she has like emerged as like a voice, an interesting person in the wake of all this political stuff that's been happening right now. And it sounds like she's been getting even more outspoken. Nice. Like seeing a, uh, a butterfly out of its cocoon kind of thing. Yeah, you could see it simmering below the surface right, on Top right. Chef. But like, you know, I think we thought of her mostly and maybe a little wrongly of of Padma as like the Vanna White of Top Chef, yeah, right? The yeah. pretty lady who like turns the letters on the competition show, right? Um, but she's got a lot to say. Yeah, no, she's deep. It's always about like opportunity too. Right. Like, uh, I feel like maybe when she early on her role with the program was to be a specific thing and shackles are gone now. Like she can be whatever she wants. And I, I, it, the evolution is really pleasant to see. Yeah. Yeah. So like in for this occasion, when she is promoting her new show, Taste the Nation, which is out on Hulu and which I review for date book. Um, you know, this is her project. This isn't someone else's project that she's signed in on. You know, she's producing it and she's the host. And so she's just, you know, unleashed, unshackled, Un- as you say. Yeah, unleashed. <laughs> <laughs> I think our conversation, my favorite parts are just where she goes all in and talks about how food is political, why, and why it's important to talk about that. So I wanted to ask you, like, why did you decide to do this, make another food travel show in, I guess, what might be like a really interesting moment where everyone gets compared to like Anthony Bourdain, for instance. Um, What was behind that? Well, I'm not really worried about that because once you see the show, I think you understand that while it is about food and there is a lot of traveling, I'm not, I'm not Tony, nor do I want to and this is a decidedly female perspective. In the case of Tony, he is chronicling the most interesting things in a certain destination, right? So it's, it's, it's more canvassing what's cool about wherever he's going. In my case, I, it's a really a show about people and, the, and using the food that they eat in order to get to know their life experience and their daily lives better. So I'm just going to go ahead and admit that my mention of Anthony Bourdain was a little calculated. You know, 
I think someone like her wouldn't want to necessarily be compared in that way. But I think the context of all these food shows, right? Like people are going to compare anyway. Yeah. And, you know, ever since Bourdain died, people have been asking like, who's the next one? You know, who's going to fill those shoes? You've seen that with like David Chang, Probably Delicious. Yeah. Um, All these other shows that have attempted this. And you saw it with Marcus Samuelson on his show on PBS, No Passport Required, where he talks about immigration and food and all this stuff. Yeah. You know, everyone's trying to take up that mantle in some way. Well, the hard part about it is that you're trying to create a feeling. Anthony Bourdain's shows were enlightening. Um, they were, you know, he was just a pleasant character to watch, to see him actually care about the spaces he was in. But it's impossible to recreate that feeling. Because Anthony Bourdain's show, you know, even all of them, um, No Reservations didn't begin that way. You know, it had a way different vibe in the beginning. But you're trying to recreate, um, you know, a moment that built over time. And I think people will be able to take parts of it, but nobody will be, at least for me, will be able to, like, replace Bourdain. Yeah. And, you know, like, it's it's interesting now because... Bourdain, to me, represented this time when you needed a white interpreter yeah. to go around the world and tell you all about other people's food. And I think one thing that I'm glad about is that I think we're past that. Yeah. Yeah. I will say if we did have to have that, you know, if he did have to be that white interpreter, the way he went about it a couple of years into it um, was really brilliant because I remember he could do a show in Iran and have dinner in a family's house and, you know, speak with this, you know, this tone, these descriptions and, you know, wholeheartedly explain a culture. And then he could be in the Mississippi Delta and talk to people about racism and, and, you know, and have clips from hip hop artists that were underground. Everything he did, he, it just felt like he really cared about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, in so many ways, these shows are an indicator, like a collage of what the person who makes them is really interested in. Very true. You know, with Samin Nosrat's show, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, she's so interested in like, um, I guess, provenance, Yeah. right? Like yeah. where ingredients come from, where yeah. flavors come from, and how they all work together, and who makes those ingredients. And I don't know, there's other shows like Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Yeah. Give me some of that Guy Fieri. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in the review, I talk about how, like, Guy is really into sauce. He's really into, like, the the, the the slow drip of mayonnaise off the side of a burger or, like, the sound of, a like, a hand slapping a grill cook's back. You know, yeah. like, that's the stuff that he lives for. Well, if, you, if he sets a burger down in front of you and explains to you why he thinks that burger is special – you will never look at Guy Fieri, you know, look at up at him from that table and be like, can you say that again? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> he is a one shot kind of guy. Like he wants everything to be. I think he wants to simplify it in his own terms. And, you know, I mean, people need that. So like, what would, what would if you had one of these shows, what would your show be called? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, first of all, I hate TV and I would never <laughs> do it. But... um Hmm. I would love to do a show about like the snacks you would find at all the ethnic groceries. Okay. And like, I don't know what that would be called though, (laughs) but you know, like I would love to go to like these small grocery stores in the U S and just like eat the delicious snacks that they have and talk about it. That'd be nice. I don't know. Kind of like what, um, 
they had on Food Network with like Unwrapped. Did you see oh, that show? Oh, yeah. I know what you're talking but, about. But like go to the, the factory where they make the shrimp chips or the honey butter chips or, yeah. you know, chat mix. That's so cool. I would have a show called, Yeah, I'm Supposed to Be Here. <laughs> and it would be me wearing a hoodie going into really fancy restaurants and just filming the interactions with people. Wow. So it'd be a mix of like punked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what? <laughs> and like a daily show segment. Right, right. I mean, you know, it seems very topical, but I feel like it would it would have some depth to it. Yeah, no, that'd be really <laughs> funny. But with like Padma's show, I think what is really interesting is that she just starts out from the gate. Like she's not coy about food being political. You know, yeah. like this is just yeah. where she is. Um, you got to follow her and meet her at her level. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, I think the fact that it has come out now you know, in mid-June, right now, when there's been so much happening, like these mass protests about racial violence, um, uprisings at mm-hmm. mainstream media outlets over, you know, white supremacy and just the ways in which staff of color have been handcuffed historically, um, people have kind of been fed up. Yeah. And it sounds like this is the show for that moment. It's really not like a travel show, although, of course, we travel. Um, it's more of an um, anthropological show about people. And it also looks at it through the lens of immigration. And it's a very subjective editorial look, I will concede, um, because I'm looking at it through the lens of my own immigration and family story. And I also am not a neutral tour guide. I have a political agenda. And it is a very political show. It's why it's called Taste the Nation. So the question of the show, which you set out to answer, and you, you articulated in the opening too, it's like, what is American food? Um, how did you settle on that question? Why America? I was hearing so much rhetoric um, out of Washington that vilified immigrants. Um, and then I was you know, hearing a lot of people pontificate about who was a real American and who was and who needed go home if they didn't like it and who could stay and you know also like what is american food what is new american cuisine Uh, what does that mean and who contributes to that you know we know who publishes the cookbooks the glossy big coffee table books and stuff but who actually gets to contribute to that ever-evolving pantheon that is american cuisine and um i guess i just wanted to give ownership of that to more people who lived in America, you know? I wanted to actually show rather than tell who we are as Americans in, in great specificity. Um, you know, so it's not even like, where are, the, where are the most amount of Mexican Americans in America? They're in LA, so that's where we're going. No, we're going to the border because that's what the issues are right now. We're going to El Paso. We're looking at the twin cities of Juarez and El Paso and how they're so interconnected and how, you know, the border, they didn't even cross the border. In some cases, the border crossed them. And so, you know, the places we picked, uh, the communities we picked in the places we picked were, were, were picked for very specific reasons. Um, and it wasn't just a generalized survey of immigrants in this country. I love that Padma talks about this, about who is in charge of creating the food environment, the food culture that we deal with. You know, like it's not like 
a reflection of the truth. Yeah. Right. The cookbooks that come out, the articles that come out, they're very much curated by a certain set of people. Right. And for her to actually speak to that feels like a big deal. So you've kind of, uh, you've been on top of this. (laughs) (laughs) This has been my beat for a very long time, but yeah, it, it always goes back to, you know, because people ask me all the time, like, how do we diversify food media? I'm sure you get asked that all the time. All the time. Yep. Um, How do we, you know, bring better stories out? How do we make it more equitable? And for me, the answer always ends up in ownership. You know, it's a very Mm -hmm. like kind of Marxist um, perspective where like, if you control the means of production, Mm -hmm. you can control what comes out. Mm -hmm. And by and large, we people like us do not control the means of production. There you go. We yeah. are kind of at the near bottom of the totem pole where we create things. Yeah. Um, but at the behest of the people who actually own those things. Um, so it can be, you know, it can be really awful as we're seeing with a lot of outlets out there. Um, there are attempts to diversify from within institutions, but mm-hmm. they can be so easily quashed by gatekeepers and the people who, you know, are in charge and don't want to look bad. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these places prefer a uh, splash of color occasionally than a consistent, you know, showing of it. So it's the same reason why, uh, you know, even if we step outside of food, if you look at like Metro News and people that were covering protests and such, you'd have a lot of publications that would bring in, you know, a POC to be like, Hey, talk about black stuff real quick. Give us a black <laughs> column. And they'd be like, all right, see, see everybody, we we know what's going on. But they, I think the transition has to come when you rely on those people consistently, um, you know, treat them fairly and then eventually move them into positions of power. So going back to the Metro News thing, instead of like bringing in someone to do a freelance columnist, be it a freelance like column writer, um, put people like that on staff. And then eventually groom them to get into positions of power. So a while back, Soleil, I talked to uh, Tende Wei, who, um, you know, is a food writer, a provocateur of sorts. And we, he, I remember he asked me, like, uh, like, what was something that I wanted out of this, out of, like, my position or just, like, working in papers. I can't remember how he phrased it. And I was like, the thing that anybody like me or him or you should want eventually is power. That's important. Like you want to be, um, if you really want to see change in this business and the in the way things are done, that people like us have to have control over something. Mm-hmm. Right. That would be so interesting to have power. Give me some of that power. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, you could totally pivot and just become Kanye. Be so infected with power yeah. that you just keep your head up your own ass see i gotta surround myself with people who are like man that's brilliant bro Kanye has a ton of those oh man yeah right i mean you see that all the time too when you you can feel it when you're wanted for what you look like yes um versus what you can actually contribute broadly i'll always remember the story that roxanne gay the novelist tells about how um I think on the day of Tamir Rice's funeral, or or it might have been the the day that the person who killed him, the cop, uh, was tried and found not guilty. Um, she got so many 
emails in her inbox from editors at magazines and stuff asking, you know, do you have an essay? Mm. And she was like, I no. Right. <laughs> I need time to grieve this very real thing that's happening. Yeah. And I think like that comes from that same sentiment of like, oh, we just need this voice right now to cover our bases. Mm-hmm. Right. And why don't you call those people any other time? Right. Yeah. Like you want someone to write about like a nice cake. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, call us. Mm-hmm. Love it. We wouldn't mind doing that. I love cake. Yeah. We don't have to constantly grieve through writing. See, you know, I think there there is a fear of like a new direction too uh, when it comes to content. And I remember, you know, so late before, obviously we wanted, uh, obviously our, you know, the Chronicle liked you, was interested in you, wanted to bring you in. And, you know, I'm sure there's someone somewhere who was probably nervous about the direction that it would go after you came because it's just uncharted territory. But if you look at the audience that you've built, like there are people that consume things that some of these really mainstream places might think is niche, but they'll consume them on a regular basis, you know, and that can be a foundation for coverage. I'm just hopeful. You know, I look at you and um, I look at at the lot of stuff that's happening. Everyone, everyone look at, oh, oh, it's a podcast. You can't look at so (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm just hopeful, man. I'm just hopeful. Yeah. No, I think that um, seeing this, talking to Padma about about all of the structure of like what we inhabit and talking to you about this stuff, it really makes me think like there are a lot of people on the inside who are trying so hard to reform things. And we've seen it with Bon Appetit and, you know, all the people on staff who are trying to make that Mm -hmm. culture better and, you know, in some ways succeeding in other ways failing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is always a constant battle. Um, It's not the only way to change things, Mm -hmm. but it certainly is like a way. Um, And they're so, in the end, again, it goes back to ownership and it goes back to power. That's it. You know, as a freelancer or a low level staffer, you're never going to have that voice because they can always just say no. That's it. Need that power, man. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We will be right back after the break. I'm Solejo, and I'm back with writer and television personality Padma Lakshmi. You know, there's this really common chestnut that I think you've certainly heard. I've heard a lot in food media and food writing, especially after 2016, about how food brings us together and breaking bread will bring us all together and solve many of our interpersonal problems and societal problems. Um, And as you demonstrate on the show, food can also be one way for oppression to manifest, right? Through like food shortages, the lack of food sovereignty, through um, you know, scarcity from climate change. So can you help unpack, like, how did you want to engage with that sort of sentiment with the show and with your work? I think a big thing for me is also that, you know, Americans love Mexican food and Thai food and Chinese food. But um, sometimes as a culture, we don't take the time to get to know the people behind that food, the hands actually making your takeout and riding your bicycle and bringing it to your house all at a very affordable price, you know? And I wanted to look at those people because it seemed to me there was a a measure of hypocrisy, especially um, in Washington about, you know, how you could see Ted Cruz loves tacos because he always goes to a Mexican place, but you know, his voting record is not that great on immigration 
And I also became convinced that if I could introduce these people, these just everyday citizens or immigrants, you know, green card holders, whatever you want to call it, to, to the larger American public and show them that their lives, you know, are just as complicated and interesting as anyone else's lives, that that would somehow demystify um, immigrant communities and, and would make it possible to dismantle the fact that, you know, immigrants are a threat to our economy. They're not. They're the opposite. So what do you think, Justin? Do you think the idea that food brings us together is bogus? No, but um, it's weird because it can it, it can bring people together and can also be divisive. And maybe it can be a threat. If you think about like 2016, um, during that wild time before the election, it was Marco Gutierrez, uh, who was the founder of that Latinos for Trump group, <laughs> said it is imposing and it's causing problems. If you don't do something about it, you're going to have taco trucks on every corner. Right. And so food can be threatening. There you go. It's a weapon. Yeah. And now, granted, you know, since we're all, um, I think quickly that was overtaken by people who have a lot of love in their heart on social media and they just like, you know, <laughs> made a ton of jokes about it. But still, like for a specific group, like that's a threatening statement, you know, based off of a food that we all love. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think back to all of the kind of political cartoons of Asians and Chinese people in particular, mm -hmm. um, kind of at the turn of the last century that depict them eating rats mm -hmm. as like the thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's a way to talk about why these people are bad because mm -hmm. they eat things that we find like horrifying, and disgusting. Yeah. Um, and I think about the history of like dog eating and like the way mm -hmm. that's been kind of vilified here. You know, not to say that I would eat a dog. Maybe I would. <laughs> but like the way in which it's been used as um, a stereotype I, I to justify saying. keeping people out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, food is a malleable thing. Um, but let's think about it like in the positive side. Right. What is can, going back to you saying can food bring people together? I think we were having a conversation one time, like, have you ever eaten a meal from an enemy, right? Someone <laughs> right. that you, and I'm sure we've all like had to break bread with someone that we were pretty sure didn't like us. But I think of like growing up down South where, I mean, racism was an easily identifiable thing and people were pretty open about why they didn't like a specific group of people. And I'm sure at some point I ate a meal in a restaurant that I probably wasn't welcome in, right? Um, did that food change my opinion of that place or those people or those owners? Nah, like I knew who they were, but they can make me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think often when people say this, they're talking about Thanksgiving, right? Like having a meal with your like racist auntie, <laughs> right? Or your parents who maybe wanted to send you to gay conversion camp or right, something, right? right yeah. And like having forgiveness enough to share a meal and pass the salt, right? Yeah. Um, but for me, I think the thing that this makes me think of is like the fact that there was an incident in my past where I pissed someone off, right? Mm -hmm. I wrote a story where the characters had an accent. This was a sci-fi story, so I just made it up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was fake. Um, and this person saw like Cajun stereotypes in it 
And I was like, oh shit. And they like voiced it to me, which was really kind of them. And then I invited them over to my house for tea and cookies because I was uh-huh. making cookies yeah. while looking at Facebook and being yelled at, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you do. Yeah. And so I invited her over and we had a really good chat and I gave, I sent her home with tons of cookies and I was like, I'm really sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, here's where I'm coming from. And she was telling me where she was coming from as someone who is often stereotyped as a Cajun, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, it was great. Yeah. But you know, you have to, the dynamic is different. I was the one who caused offense and I offered something, right? you know, um, it wasn't up to her to give me something so that we could connect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the simple act of, I think what people have to understand, the simple act of breaking bread, of being like, oh, we got a meal. We should be good. No, you do have to have some kind of conversation. And like, that, also, you got to ask, like, who's bread? Yeah, true, true, true. You know, who bought it? Yeah, yeah, true. And see, that's the thing. Like, when you had that meal, you were acknowledging something that was wrong, something that may have been like, you know, you were acknowledging there was another perspective that you needed to hear and you guys need to talk, let them say their piece. Like, that's important. You know, I... I don't know, man. I feel like people think that just the act of like, you know, we got coffee together. Or we sat down and ate some food. We should be good. Like, right. Sometimes you got to have like a, you got to rip the bandaid off. You got to have a painful conversation around it. Food just happens to be the thing that keeps you guys at the same place. Right. And you know? like the thing about restaurants too, and eating at restaurants is that they are inherently transactional relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you gave money to a black owned business mm-hmm. um, doesn't mean that you did a mitzvah <laughs> right right yeah 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 like yeah you're cool right. but like mm-hmm. did you talk to people right like people and not like as mm-hmm. you know did you clutch your bag when you were walking out as another group of black people walking in <laughs> i always I always think of it like this this has nothing to do with food but uh it's funny that you brought that point up i remember 20 ooh, had to be 2016 there was like a black lives matter protest in berkeley and I was on BART and uh, there were these older uh, white women that were on there. And so, you know, they had their Black Lives Matter t-shirts on and, you know, like signs in their hands ready to roll. And we stopped in West Oakland and a, like a, a large group of uh, black youths got on and they were by their side and the ladies went to the other train. And clearly it was because the element in the train had changed, right? <laughs> and so, but you know, I mean, they probably still went to the protests, like did their thing, like their feelings in the right place. It, I think all that connects back to the idea of like having a meal with somebody and thinking that's enough. Nah, it's not enough. Like you got to talk, you got to be active. Yeah. One thing I really appreciate about the show too, is that it's not just pleasurable, right? It's not just gorgeous shots of ingredients and grilling, which there are many of, um, but I think this is the food series that probably has the most like concentration camp footage I've ever seen. What? Really? Yeah. You know, um, and I don't say that as a joke, really. Right. Like, I, I mean, I say this with admiration that like this is something that isn't, you know, glided over or or cast in some sort of like nostalgic luster or whatever or, or minimized, you know, um, it really looks you in the face and it's it's a show that i could imagine being on like msnbc as well as hulu um can you talk a little bit about like that framing and just that that method of of using stock footage in ways that feel very distinctly political um it is a political show it's obviously a political show and um it it wasn't it's not it wasn't an effort on my part 
when I created the show to, to brand it in that way. Um, the thing that I was focused most on as a filmmaker is telling the story truthfully and, and as um, thoroughly as I could with the resources that I had. Um, it wasn't like I want this to be in your face, but I did want to look the truth in the eye. I wanted to say that sometimes the story behind the apple you are biting into is not so pleasant. And you can still enjoy that apple, but you should know the history of what's in your hand and what is sustaining you physically and giving you nourishment. That's important. Information to me is important. It grounds our, our everyday habits and it makes... You know, if you know things come from and the reasons behind stuff, you need to know your history. It it hopefully gives your actions more depth and meaning. How do you want the show to hit now, um, you know, in this context that we are living through? I want it to hit hard, far and wide. Like I, I want as many people to watch it as possible just to get out of their own skin for half an hour just to walk in someone else's shoes and understand what they went through. Because if we don't have empathy for other people who live among us and have a right to live among us, we will never overcome the very serious existential problems that this country is going through, either in healthcare or in race relations or the environment or in governmental policy. All of those things are interconnected. And if we don't understand very quickly that we have to take care of all of us, somewhere, somehow, and very soon, I believe, we will be hit, I hope not, but we will be hit with a third crisis. These things always come in three. So, Justin, what do you think? What do you think will be the third horseman of the Padmapocalypse? third horseman this this one's going to be kind of deep and very sci-fi-ish what if the next thing that happens is every cute animal video that you click on on twitter spirals you back all the way to november 2016 what what does that even mean (laughs) somehow there's like a portal in time (laughs) there's the space-time continuum has ripped open uh, and that's going to be the next like catastrophe that happens. For some reason, it's going to be Twitter pet animals that send you back to do all this shit over again. So like butterfly effect. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah, maybe something like that. That would be... The fabric of reality becomes just untethered. Okay. That's the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big one. Yeah. Okay. I think mine would be robot uprising. Robot uprising. Okay. Yeah, you know, like all those, again, like all those cute robots, little dog-shaped ones they have at Boston Dynamics or Robotics or whatever, the ones that can like do backflips and stuff. And then like the Burger one in downtown San Francisco, they're just going to be like fed up. Coffee robot that just splashes it in your face real quick. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be like Maximum Overdrive, that Stephen King movie. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It'll be uh, that salad making robot when you reach in to get your salad. It's right, it'll take like, a knife <laughs> right to your stomach. Yep. Oof. What's, an- what's another food robot that we can think of? <laughs> I, don't I know, mean, man. there's all those little like uh, delivery robots in Berkeley yeah. and like Mountain View. Um, they'll turn all the food inside of them to poison. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What if you like start driving by and you see them all like huddled on like street corners, like bumping into each other, talking and 
whispering and stuff. Plotting. Plotting. Yeah. Or they like get on top of each other and become like, you know, eight high. <laughs> yeah. The, ro- the robot uprising. Yeah. I, I I wonder which one would scare me the most probably. <laughs> I don't know, man. The, the, the coffee robot with, you know, the move. No, actually there's a robot that uh, makes smoothies and, um, Ooh. It has a bunch of blenders, so it has spinning knife hands, basically. It's a ninja, basically. Yeah. And imagine that thing just, like, decides to push the glass casing down and start, you know, whipping those hands around. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, making human smoothies. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> On that note... <laughs> Thank you for listening to our interview with Padma Lakshmi and then our like ridiculousness <laughs> as we are inspired by all the wonderful things that she says. Yeah. <laughs> to amazing, our own tangents. Amazing stuff. Yeah. Great interview. Now we're going to transition to this other segment. Um, every other week we will switch between this one and another one where we take your questions and give you advice. But this week is what is this nonsense? What? What? Is what is this? What is this nonsense? So we're in this moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter is like very much a part of the mainstream culture now. Um, again, people are protesting in the streets for the, an end to race, race-based violence mm-hmm. and police violence. Um, and a lot of corporations and restaurants have jumped on board. Um, I can't tell you how many of my, you know, the restaurants that I follow on Instagram, right, have posted statements in solidarity, yep, which yep. I never would have imagined. Even the French Laundry, although they didn't do it on their main feed. They did a story that disappeared after 24 hours. Oh, interesting. But, you know, they, yeah. they tried, right? Mm-hmm. Um. But the thing that got me was Popeyes. <laughs> and they tweeted, um, Popeyes is nothing without black lives. Oh my period. God. <laughs> <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> I just like I, I can't. <laughs> I just imagine just the social media person. Click, 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 click. Sinned. They're gonna love this. Yeah, I've defeated racism. <laughs> yeah. right. Now, look. black people eat Popeyes. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Look, it's no secret. Like everyone I know loves it. That's <laughs> right. fine. Like, but it, there's a time and a place and context. Didn't they like redo the tweet at some point? They redid the tweet to give it more context, yeah. but for a glorious few minutes, that <laughs> was mean, it. I mean, there's so much to think with that, though. I remember, like, uh, remember during the chicken sandwich craze? Oh, yes. And they had that one photo that was kind of like the photo representation of just the fatigue everyone felt around it. But it was that, uh, it was a black woman who was sitting outside of the restaurant. Just tired. Yeah, just dog tired. And I'm assuming it was from like a shift that day or whatever. But anyway, that became the. So then, I mean, come on, Popeyes, PR people, whatever, and social media people. You have to understand that. Like the hidden joke is that, you know, I don't know if it's hidden. Like <laughs> black community, like we, we rock with Popeyes for sure. And then also like, you know, that one image from the trend was from the sandwich thing was like a black woman. So then it's, you know, hinted at like most of the workers are black and then you just, we'd be nothing without black. It's like, you got to think about stuff, man. Yeah, it's it's pretty complicated. And, you know, 
You got you got to really think it through. You know what that social media person needs to do? Eat one of the biscuits and not get anything to drink. That's the punishment. <laughs> it's like the Popeye's equivalent of stepping on a Lego. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> oh, oh man, man, that's good. Yeah, I mean, there have been so many statements that were just like so not thought out in yeah. this time that I, we could probably talk about even more. But like to me, that was the pinnacle of just like you tried it. Yeah, you tried it. You know who did kind of uh, did kind of do it right ben and jerry's yeah like they had that uh they had a tweet it was like you know dismantle white supremacy but they also have like a history of uh donating to like black lives matter and stuff but i was surprised about that i mean yeah. that's one way i would totally expect them to have like a, f- a new flavor like a cab blueberry yeah or yeah something, yeah oh man every wa- yeah i mean they'd sell out no blueberry lives matter see i would be upset if they did that though because that would feel almost like Granted, I'd be interested in what it tastes like, though. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody would, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, some places really just, like, botch the whole thing. Popeye's shame on you. <laughs> shame on you. <laughs> still get the biscuits, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm still eating it. It's fine. And that's the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Padma Lakshmi for being on the show and to Erica Carlos for editing this episode. You can read the transcript of my full interview with Padma Lakshmi at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. We'd love to know what you think about our show. So please send us your thoughts and let us know what topics you'd like us to cover by sending us an email at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. See you next time. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Solejo, on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at JustMrPhillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 